Uh, last week we talked about Bible translations, and I, I was trying to probably do too much in one lesson, and so I think I spent a lot of time uh, focusing on one issue, and if, if you walked away feeling like that's the only issue in Bible translation, that's not true, and I, I used the NASB as my example most of the time, so you might have left feeling like that's the worst translation in the world. I just didn't get a chance to talk about the others at all. So today we'll kind of put things into balance a little bit more. My, my main two points last week were, number one, that translation is really difficult and that a lot of Christians and or pastors like to think that it's not difficult. And so what ends up happening is pastors or Christians will identify a translation they don't like for some reason and then just lambast it and make it sound like it's the most ungodly thing in the world. Um, so the NIV or the NLT or some of these other translations, sometimes there are pastors who will say, this, it's not word for word, so therefore it's not faithful to the Bible. Well, I tried to point out last week that no English translation actually goes word for word because that would be impossible. And then my second point was that there's no one English word that you can plug in for one Greek word. That's not how language works. So my Spanish, trans, it's, this is true for all languages. My Spanish examples were como se llama. We wouldn't translate that how yourself call. We'd say that's bad English because we just tried to stick one English word for one Spanish word. We don't want to do that. And no English Bible translation actually does that, even though some say they do that. So I read a bunch of prefaces to Bible translations this morning. Do you guys read the preface in your Bible translation? You should. And then you should read it compared to other translation prefaces, and you'll see where they're trying to differentiate each other from everyone else. And you'll see sometimes how their claims actually don't stand up. You know, they're marketing it. You know, they're, they're trying to get an audience. But let me read you a word-for-word -word translation trying to plug one English word in for one Greek word for John 3.16. And you'll see why no, literal, no truly literal translation would ever sell and why it's bad English. Most, do you all know John 3.16 and your respectively favorite translations? Yeah. Okay. Uh, for uh, here it goes. So for loved the God the world, so that the Son, the unique, though we don't know how to translate monogenes, the begotten, the only begotten, the one and only, the unique, we don't know. Uh, that's a big argument. Uh, so that the Son, the unique, he gave in order that everyone, the one believing in him, not he might perish, but he might have life eternal or everlasting or uh, some other rendition of that. So do you see why a literal word-for-word -word translation would be garbage in terms of good English? Now, I'm happy to say no translation that claims to be literal actually is literal. Uh, but the, the bone I was trying to pick with that last week is it convinces some people that you're getting a better edition of the Bible than another one. What I want to argue instead is that you're getting some strengths and some weaknesses on a more literal end of the spectrum that differ from the strengths and weaknesses on the other more dynamic or functional end of the spectrum. Um, so when we get down to it, we all want to ask the question, what's the best Bible translation? And I want to say that's like asking, what's the best tool for building a house? Or what's the best kind of car? 
Well, the answer is always going to be, well, what's the situation we're looking at here? Um, like, what's the best kind of car? Well, for some circumstances, a four-wheel drive truck might be the best kind of car, but even that will have strengths and weaknesses. Are you looking for the best gas mileage? Or are you looking for the most horsepower? Like, you have to ask more specific kinds of questions when you get into what Bible translation should I use? You need to extend that question. Which Bible translation should I use for this purpose? Now, the frustrating thing, and it's just reality, is that we all want to be able to say we found the best one for everything and not ever have to modulate out of that translation. Um, we'll, get, we'll return to that in a moment. As we're evaluating translations and thinking about them, we, I want to point out that there are three main areas of complications. The first is accuracy. You know, so when we're talking about we want an accurate translation, that's sort of a moving target. Accurate to what? Um, are we trying to accurately reduplicate a Greek sentence structure, or are we trying to accurately communicate an idiom or a euphemism? You know, these are all tough questions. So we can say that we want accuracy, but we're going to have to fill that out a little bit more. Um, we can also say, well, we want clarity in our Bible translation. But even that is more complicated than it appears on the face. Um, there are some texts in the Bible that would not have been clear to the original readers. Sometimes these texts wouldn't have been clear because the author is trying to communicate a double meaning or multivalency, something polyvalent, a double entendre, we might say. So when, when the author says something, it might not mean just one thing, and so they're using a unique expression that's somewhat ambiguous. So it's actually sometimes good for Bible translations to be ambiguous because it might communicate a broader range of meaning that that author is getting at. So when we say we want a clear Bible translation, we have to figure out what, what would have been clear or not clear to the original readers and try to match that level of clarity or lack of clarity to communicate the same kind of nuances. I'm just trying to express it's complicated. We also might say, and, and I think this is true, um, we want to have Bible translations that use natural sounding English. But again, this is only true as far as it can go. Do you think it's ever possible that one of the biblical authors intentionally used unnatural sounding Hebrew or Greek in their writing? Yes, it's 100% true. So we need people who know these ancient languages really, really well and to know English really, really well. And we need probably multiple translations because no one translation will get it exactly right every time. And that's not bad because it's not possible. Um, there are a lot of good quotes we could pull out where people say things like, all translation is um, being a traitor. You know, every translator is a traitor. Because you have to become a traitor on some level. Um, all translation is interpretation. So some of the prefaces I read this morning said that they strive to include no interpretation in their translation. Well, every translation has to. That's the nature of translation. Um, so my point is, when you're reading these prefaces, first of all, read them. Number two, try to pick up on what that particular translation is trying to do. And then number three, without turning into um, 
some sort of a tinfoil hat person, realize that publishers are making money off of these things, so that also plays into it. Um, you know, that's, that's just what it is. Now, you might think, okay, there's no way to win here. I want to suggest the way to win here is to use multiple translations. I'll, I'll make some recommendations about that in a moment, but I want to remind you of some of the difficulties in translation along the way. One is idioms. An idiom is just an English sentence that doesn't actually mean what it says. Um, so break a leg. The, you know, if, I, if, if right before I got up here to teach, Kate was like, hey, break a leg, would she actually be saying, break your leg while you're walking up there. No, we all know that this is not what that means. And what this teaches us is that in translation, you can't just plug in a word for a word. You can't look up the meaning of a word and say that's what the sentence means because that's not how language works. If you look up the definition for break and the indefinite article a uh, in the word leg, you'd never come out with what we mean by break a leg. Um, same thing with hold your horses. None of us own horses. Steve could, they've got a farm. Um, but when someone says, hold your horses, it's a figure of speech and you can't look up those words and come up with the meaning. If we were translating what I just taught into Spanish, unless they also have an idiom, hold your horses, you'd have to find out a different way of doing it. And you'd have to decide, am I going to do this literally? So instead of translating break a leg into an equivalent idiom, do we just say, do a good job? Do we say it literally, or do we try to preserve the colloquial, casual nature of that statement? These are hard decisions translators have to make. Um, so here's an example in Greek. Here's an idiom. She was found in stomach having, would be our English way of saying it. And what that means is she was pregnant. So which one should we do? Well, I think we should say she was pregnant instead of she was found in stomach having, especially because there's never the extra word of, a baby, you know, it's just like tough. Another one, girding up the loins of your mind. I mean, that's a, that's a weird one anyway to try to visualize, but should we translate things girding up the Lord, loins of your mind or the way that the English standard version does, prepare your minds for action? I think that one might be better than girding up the loins of your mind. And what about metaphors and similes? I mean, metaphors are hard, you, you know. What if you're translating the Bible into an area that doesn't have the same metaphor capacities that the biblical world had? So here's an example. Um, what, what if you're translating the Bible into a culture, in a place where there have never been sheep ever, but they do have goats? Should you say that Jesus is the goat of the world? I don't know. This is a tough one to me because the lamb has a lot of significance, but also in Leviticus 16, when, we, you know, the biggest thing about Jesus being the lamb of the world is he's a sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. Well, guess what animals are used on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16? Two goats. So it could actually work theologically to say Jesus was the goat of the world because you could communicate Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of the world. Now, is that wise to do? I don't know. You know, I haven't ever been in that spot. But I just want to say you can see why there would be a good argument for someone who has an island full of goats and no lambs who might translate it goat of the world. We don't want to lambast them and say that they're, uh, you know, watering down the Bible or something. 
Um, historical cultural context issues, you know, do we use the same technical terms that are not in our culture? So, for example, um, should we use the term disciple? Well, I think in American English we could because that our, you know, a lot of our language system is so formed by the King James Bible and Anglican Christianity, Protestant Christianity, that we can use a lot of these. But in some places, you, and maybe as our world become, country is more secular, we might want to say follower, you know, instead of disciple. Um, same thing, what about covenant? Or should we use the word promise? Or scribes? Should we say experts in the law? Because that communicates what their job was. Well, these are tough things that we've got to figure out. Money and measurements, these are tough. Um, you know, so in Luke 9.13, do you, do you say 10 minas? I don't even know how you pronounce that, minas. Um, or do you say something like about $12,000? Or because inflation is nuts, do you just say about three months' wages? Well, these are all hard things as we're trying to communicate money and measurements. What about euphemisms? So euphemisms are those things where we're talking about something that's probably sensitive or um, graphic. So we use a euphemism, we use a different term to be less shocking. But then eventually euphemisms become more shocking uh, sometimes. That's why you can um, use certain words that we would you know, four-letter words for something, and it's actually way more shocking than just talking about the literal thing you're talking about. So knowing how euphemisms work is tough, but, but let me give you an example <clears throat> um, in, of the way that this could actually influence the way you read. Uh, in Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, instructed her to go to Boaz and uncover his feet, and then she goes into the, the his place where he's sleeping, and she uncovers his feet. Well, in Hebrew, there's a euphemism for having sexual relations, and that is uncover his foot, singular, instead of feet, plural. So we have to try to figure out in this world of euphemisms what to do with that text, because probably what's going on is this storyteller is trying to communicate the story in a way where you feel like something sexually inappropriate is about to happen. You know, Ruth is of the line of Moab. You think of the Genesis 19 Moabite situation, the single woman going on, on the threshing floor where prostitutes are known to frequent in Israel. So Hosea 9.1 says something like, you love your prostitutes on the threshing floor. Well, Ruth is going to the, the threshing floor to sleep in the same bed with this guy, and there's an almost euphemism used to make you think, wait, is something bad about to happen? So in our English translations, when we just say she uncovered his feet, and there's actually a literary play going on where if it had said uncover his foot, it would have meant they had sexual intercourse, but they didn't. You know, it's in, everyone else would have assumed that, though. How do we translate that? I don't know. That's a tough one. You know, I would want to maybe say something like um, she slept with him at the foot of the bed. So it makes it seem like something bad almost happened, but it, it didn't. You know, it's hard to know how we do these things, and there's probably no right way to do it. Um, so I don't know what to say about that other than multiple translations will help us realize when something's going on there. Instead, what you end up having is the Bible study 
like questioning, why did she uncover his feet? Like, what was the point of that? Well, then you end up having like an hour-long discussion about um, how his feet might have gotten cold and she was trying to wake him up, but not quickly, so it's like a slow wake up. You know, like these are the actual kinds of things that are written down in devotional guides. Instead of catching on to the, the literary artistry of this euphemism um, almost being used, but diverting, making the point that they remained sexually pure and undid their his, her family history, pretty much. Okay? So euphemisms are tough. Same thing with 1 Corinthians 7.1, where, you know, more woodenly we would say, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, that's a euphemism for not having sexual relations. Well, how do we translate that? I don't think we should leave it, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I think it might be best if we could have another euphemism that would be the equivalent. But for most translations, they're just going to put, it's good not to have sex with a woman. Well, I don't know what to do with that. What would be the best euphemism in the United States for that? It's good not to sleep with a woman, maybe. I don't know. These, a lot of them revolve around sexual things, which makes it also a little bit difficult. Um, so that, that's another challenge. Another one is gender accuracy. Um, in a lot of language, there's something called grammatical gender. So it has nothing to do with biological gender, really, but it kind of also does. It's really bizarre, okay? So in... Um, Spanish, the pronoun they. In English, they does, like if we said they did this. Now, this is even more complicated because of all our pronoun issues. But think in the 1992, when someone said they, they'd be referring to a group of people. And it would say nothing about the gender composition of that group of people. Now, in Spanish, if you were saying they referring to a group of females, you'd say ellas. E-L-L-A-S. But if one group was uh, in that, one person in that group was a male, you'd use the male pronoun they, A-Y-O-S, O-S. But it's not saying anything about the whole gender constituency. It's not saying they're all males. So you can see how even in that pronoun example, a masculine is used for a group that's comprised of men and women. Does this make sense? Okay. So in, in Greek, you have the same issue with different words. So often, um, there's this word adelphoi. If you think Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, you have adelphile, right? Brotherly love. Well, adelphois is the masculine plural edition of that word. Now, there is a feminine edition of that word, but whenever the New Testament authors, like Paul sa- or James, says, my brothers, adelphois, We have to decide, is he talking to both men and women? And if so, how do we translate that into English? Well, I think most translations rightly say brothers and sisters now. Um, Because when we talk to a group of people, we don't say brothers to everyone in this room because we're talking to men and women. Do you see like some of these gender, grammatical gender is a tough thing. Now what happens, for better or for worse, because we have this really weird thing going on in our culture with pronouns and gender and everything else, what people will do is they'll latch on to something like that and accuse a Bible translation of being liberal because they're saying brothers and sisters instead of brothers. And that's really unfortunate 
because it's not an issue of politics. It's an issue of grammar that's taking place in a politically hot world as it relates to grammar. So when you, when you hear someone say, um, a Bible translation is gender inclusive and that's bad, what that used to mean was translating brothers as brothers and sisters because that's what was actually being communicated in the language. Now, when you hear people talk about being gender inclusive, we're talking about bathrooms, you know, and that's, a, that's frustrating. So if you hear someone critiquing a translation for being gender inclusive, you've got to ask more questions. And you can't assume it's good in the way I'm talking about or bad. You know, you, you just have to dig into it. It's frustrating. I would say that any of the translations that I reference today positively are gender inclusive in the right way or um, some of them are take, like, taking a stand and trying not to be gender inclusive. But they are in the footnotes. So the English Standard Version, I kind of like to make fun of this on theirs. They'll say brothers and then they footnote and put or brothers and sisters. Well, the CSB, the translation we generally use, says brothers and sisters with a footnote that says or brothers. You know, so there's some equivocation going on here because they're trying to market it to the right audience. A, a good translation theory would just say brothers and sisters and not have any debate about it. <clears throat> um, does, that, does this all make sense? I'm just trying to say there are a lot of issues here. And before we lob bombs at translations, we want to make sure we think about what some of these issues are. I appreciate the Bible translations that have footnotes in them. Um, if your Bible translation has footnotes in them, look at the footnotes. They're actually quite helpful most of the time. Um, some, sometimes they aren't. One, one area where they're not helpful is when it says literally something. So I think this is my, one of the biggest contentions I have with our Christian Standard Bible that we use. Back to the brothers and sisters example. When it translates brothers and sisters, it will have a footnote and it will say literally brothers or it'll put Greek brothers. The problem anytime you see a footnote that says Greek or Hebrew and then it has an English word is it's not giving you the Hebrew or Greek word. So it's just giving you an additional gloss for English. But it can be confusing for people who say, nope, in the Greek it's brothers. That's not helpful. Um, so it would be better for them to say, footnote, there's a grammatical gender issue here. That's it. You know, that, that would be helpful. Okay. Let me talk to you about some different kinds of translations that I think can be used in various ways. Um, I'm a big advocate for using multiple translations. I would say that there are like the big three, that if I could put them on everybody's shelf, and those are what you pulled down, I think that would be awesome. The first one would be the NSAB. The second one would be either the CSB or the NIV. And then the third one would be the NLT. Okay, so let me, let me talk about this. So by grabbing one from a different translation camp and comparing it with the other translation camps, you're able to spot the differences better. If you compare um, the... ESV and the NASB, for example, you are, you're not going to have a ton of differences. Um, if you compare the NSAB and the NLT, the New Living Translation, you'll see the differences pretty clearly and you'll know where the problem issues are. So that's why when you're 
reading multiple translations, you want to read pretty different translations so you can pick up what the differences are. Uh, the NASB, I've, I've kind of thrown down on a little bit for being too wooden and not helpful in a smooth translation form. I'm not trying to say it's not helpful for anything. In fact, if this would be the, one of the easiest translations to preach out of because it does make fewer interpretive decisions and it's a little bit more wooden because it matches the Greek a little bit better or the Hebrew a little bit better sometimes. It just doesn't communicate the meaning. Um, so from a preaching perspective, I don't have to say, I don't like the way the CSB took this. I can just say, here's this difficult phrase and this is what the grammar is doing and this is what it means. So for preaching, it's a lot easier to use the NASB for studying commentaries. I think that's a lot easier because they're talking generally about the Hebrew or Greek text, and so you can follow along better. Um, and then I know there are multiple people who have used the NS NASB here forever, and you've gotten used to some of the non-standard English sentence structures, so you don't even notice it. And that's fine. I think the more that you adopt something, the more familiar you become with it, and you kind of learn it as you go. It's like when you read an author and they use weird sentence structurings. Like eventually you just know that author and you can track along with it even though a lot of other people can't. So I, I like reading this guy, David Foster Wallace, and he, he was a really fractured guy. So he would write in a fractured way. And unless you know his style, it's rough, it's wooden, it's hard to follow. But I think it's great writing. Um, I think we could talk that way about the NASB, okay? Um, moving down the continuum, there's the King James Bible. Um, I, I know some people like using the King James Bible. I'm not sure why anyone would outside of sentimental reasons. So I'm not meaning that negatively or like, hey, you're doing something bad if you're reading the King James Bible. I'm just suggesting that we have better things out there for a lot of reasons. I'll give three main ones. One is when that translation was put together, it was put together under the ordering of a political figure, <laughs> this guy, King James. So as soon as the state gets involved in something, I think we should be attuned to the reality that it rose out of some social political agenda. So there were other options at that time, like the Geneva Bible, for example. So I, I think maybe there, if you dug into it, there were some issues there. Um, second, it's based on, especially the New Testament is what we're talking about here. It's based on about seven or nine Greek manuscripts because we just didn't have a lot of them at the time. Now we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, so you have better manuscripts to read from. Um, so the NKJV updated some of the language, but it didn't use the better manuscripts, so it has the same flaws as the King James. The final thing is, if, you, if you're going to read the King James, I just recommend pulling out an archaic dictionary because there are words that don't mean the same thing now as they meant in the 1600s. So here's one example, the word halt. Um, so if I quoted this sentence from that uh, Nathan or Samuel, that Samuel said to Saul, he said, why halt ye between two opinions? We hear that halt. There's this guy, Mark Ward, who wrote a book on the King James Bible. That's really, really good. But he said, he says, there are something called false friends. They're words that you think you know that you don't know. And this is one of them. Halt, we would all think, 
why are you not making a decision? Why, why are you stopping between these two options? Why, why are you failing to act? Well, in the King James era, halt meant limp. So um, why are you limping between these two opinions? Why, why are you like partly going to one direction and then going back to the other? Why are you being a fence sitter? So it's not a huge theological issue, but it does miscommunicate what that guy's trying to say. And you won't know it unless you're looking up common words. So it just takes a lot more work to identify these false friends, as Mark Ward calls them. So King James, New King James, New King James updated it so it's a little bit more readable, but it didn't fix, fix any of the issues. So those, if you read the King James, uh, don't feel bad about it. Just pull out these tools. Grab Mark Ward's book, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. He has a whole list of these false friends that will help you identify them. Um, the RSV, NRSV, um, I think these are decent translations. They're more ecumenical, broadly used translations. Uh, there was a lot of debate about this translation because in the, the text about in Isaiah about a young woman will have a child, the, the Hebrew word parthenos, could, or Greek word parthenos, sorry, Septuagint translation, uh, can either mean virgin or young woman. It's only the context that determines it. In that context, it should be young women, woman um, because it's Isaiah's wife who then goes on and has a kid, Mahar, Shalal, ba, whatever his name is, speeding to the plunder. Um, well, then the New Testament authors retrospectively look back on that. And in Matthew, it should be translated virgin because they just talked about this young woman who had never slept with a guy. So there we know virgins at play. But some theological conservatives accuse the RSV and NRSV of being liberal and trying to cut out the virgin birth, which wasn't the case. It was a misunderstanding by the people making the accusation. Um, now, there is an NRSV updated edition that just came out. I, you know, here, I don't want to opine about this for too long, but I, I also, and I don't want to put tinfoil on my head on this one, but I kind of wonder if they're paving the way towards um, some liberal tendencies, and this is why. Uh, they, in texts that relate to homosexuality, there are two of them where they're clear, this is sinful, but there's another one where they just switch it to fornication and then put a footnote that we don't know what the Greek word means, when actually we all know what the Greek word means. So I've, I don't think it should be a big liberal scare, but I would want to ask, why are you doing that? Like, that just makes no sense. So NRSV, I don't love the updated edition on that issue. Um, conservatives who wanted the RSV and NRSV, but wanted their kind of flags planted in their particular places, got together and pretty much just revised it and grabbed onto some other things, and that's the ESV. So the ESV, you know, someone was telling me that they were talking to someone who kind of jokes about it being the Young, Restless, and Reformed edition or the, the Calvinist edition, because that's maybe sort of the groups that adopted it the most. Crossway Publishers put it out. Um, it's a fine translation, but I think it kind of hits the worst of both worlds in some ways because it doesn't follow normal English sentence structure and it doesn't read like spoken English. Um, but on the good side, it does use better manuscripts. So it's 
tough for me to know what to do with the ESV because it's not bad, but I think we have better options now for a go-to translation, which is why we don't use it as our preaching Bible. Um, the CSB is the, the next one down the list, and I think, obviously, this is the one that's the most helpful for just a standard Bible, in part because it has a lot of footnotes that will indicate where um, a more dynamic translation could be there, or when they've gone a little more dynamic, where a more, uh, you know, word-for-word -word translation could be. I, I think it, and then it follows more standard English. So it uses contractions. It follows the sentence structure that we use. So, but not so much that it's totally street-level slang, you know. So I think, I think it, they say that they have optimal equivalents. I think they may be claiming too much on that, but I think it's a good standard translation. And you'll, you hear me regularly point out where I don't like one of the ways it translates a verse. So whenever I preach and I don't like something, I just pick a translation that does what I do like and I put it on the screen and, you know, so I'm not here advocating for it as the best quote unquote, but I think it's a really helpful one. Slightly over, we have the NIV. Um, the NIV kind of actually did get a bad rap, somewhat for good reason with the TNR, TNIV, today's NIV. I think maybe there were some issues, but not as big of an issue as people made them out to be, okay? So often when people are either highly praising or deeply debasing a translation, just say, um, yeah, there's probably something there, but not nearly as bad as you're saying, you know, just move to the middle on that. NIV, I think, is pretty great overall. I think it's a good like pull out and read translation, but it's not that different than the CSB. And actually, I think CSB does better on it than some things. Um, and, and again, the problem with th this kind of thing, especially as you get further this way, is you won't even know there's an issue there unless you compare it to other things. So I was listening to someone on the NIV translation committee this week making a critique about a text in the Old Testament in the law with how to deal with someone who was raped. Um, and there are some, you know, if a woman is raped in the field and cries out, like, she's not liable for that. But then they translate a different word, rape, that shouldn't be translated rape, and it communicates something really demeaning about women there. So I think NIV, you'll run across some of those things. But overall, I think it's a really helpful translation. Um, next well, kind of in the same, if you could split NIV and CSB, that like half of an inch gap between them would be the NET, uh, the Net Bible New English Translation. I think this one's also really good, like, you know, for like a standard one. I like this one for Bible study maybe the best because it has so many notes. Okay, so I want to pull this up for you because it's free. The other thing about the Net that they're a little bit free of is they didn't put a lot of copyright laws on their text. So it's a little bit more public domain-ish. Um, not quite, but if you can see in this side, uh, the left side, there are a lot of notes that deal with the Hebrew and the Greek. So if you actually care about the Hebrew and the Greek, grab a net full notes edition, and it's like, there are more notes on each page than Bible text on each page, which makes it not great for like reading a big chunk at a time. But for careful study, I think this is a good one. So I pulled up one example that might be in our, on our minds. 
Um, Josh last week preached Zechariah 4, 1 through 14, and he ended with verse 14. Nat says, so he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Well, there's a footnote after anointed ones that I think is really helpful um, because a lot of people with common Bible knowledge know that the word Messiah is what's generally there for anointed ones. So we might read messianic things into this label, these two anointed ones. But this note says the usual word for anointed one, Mishiach, Messiah, is not used here, but rather B'nai Hayatshar, literally sons of fresh oil. Well, that's helpful because if you remember the picture Josh put up, there were two olive trees in oil coming out or something like that. Um, So the note goes on, this is to maintain consistency with the imagery of the olive trees. In the immediate context, these two olive trees should be identified with Joshua and Zerubbabel, the priest and the governor. Only the high priest and king were anointed for office in the Old Testament, and these two were respectively the descendants of Aaron and David. That is a helpful note that shows how the literal Greek fits the imagery and helps us interpret the text. The Net Bible has these over and over and over, and they're almost always that helpful. Um, we have time. Let me look at one more. We've got this issue of slave. How do you translate this word doulos in Greek? Slave or servant or bond servant. So in Romans 1, 1, this shows up. For Paul, a slave of Christ is how they went. I don't know what other translations do. But, but they, they give us a, the whole scoop on why this is tough to translate. Undoubtedly, the background for the concept of being the Lord's slave or servant is to be found in the Old Testament scriptures. For someone who was, in Jewish, who was Jewish, this concept did not denote drudgery, but honor and privilege. Um, it goes on, though. Traditionally, uh, doulos is normally translated servant. The word does not bear the connotation of a free individual serving another. So it gets into all of these issues. The note goes on and on. I won't take time to read it. But that's helpful. That's more helpful than... Um, a footnote that just says, or slave, or servant, or bond servant, because you don't know which one to pick. You just go with your gut. Well, the notes in the NET help you move beyond just going with your gut without having to pull out a commentary, okay? So, I, you know, when we were trying to pick which translation to use, this is one of the translations that we were like, this would be ideal. The problem is when you pull op- it open and there are more footnotes and there are Bible verses on a page, it gets so clunky and cumbersome that it's hard to, it, the aesthetic aspect of it is hard to get people onto. Um, but I'd say if you're looking for a, a good, like, this is what I'm going to pull out to study something or to, like, decide the differences between the translations, the Net Bible is a really good go-to. Um, and then you have further down the way, I'm skipping a bunch, like the New Living Translation. This one is just so readable. I mean, I, I think it's just a great readable translation, uh, but it makes some interpretive decisions that I would disagree with, but you wouldn't know that it's an interpretive decision unless you compare it with something else. Now, by comparing it with something else, you can figure out that an interpretive decision has been made, but you can't figure out which one you should go with. You've got to go back to the sources, okay? Um, even though most of us just go with our gut when deciding these things. That's not the right way to do it. And then you have non-translations, but paraphrases. The Message, for example, by Eugene Peterson. 
Eugene Peterson never intended for the message to be thought of as a translation. In fact, he went head to head with publisher for a long time saying, I do not want chapters and verses in here because then people will think of it as a Bible translation and it's not. Well, it's really great to read through it one time. Do your through the Bible in a year, reading large chunks out of the message. And I think it will be really refreshing and enlightening and will make you want to dig back into more formal translations. Now, that being said, um, he uses a lot of figures of speech. The problem is faster than ever because of a lot of reasons, mostly technology. Figures of speech change so fast that some of his figures of speech are now just totally outdated and clunky and hard to deal with. So unfortunately, he passed away in 2018, and he'll never update it, but I hope IVP does sometime, or InterVarsity Press, right? Um, so I, I said that there are the big three. I think NASB, CSB, and, N CSB and NLT are three great, like if you want to compare. I think a good go-to study one is the Nat Bible. I think Josh uses that a lot. Is that right? NET. Yeah, it's free online, and all the notes are there. And then you can also, on that side, like uh, compare with other translations. You can pull up the Greek and hover over it and see like the Greek dictionary stuff. It's amazing that they just allow this to be out there for free. So I just commend that. If you're trying to mediate between translations and you don't want to look at a commentary, go to netbible.org and look at the notes of the, the Net Bible, and that will give you criteria for making your decision. Um, we're running out of time here, and I want to leave a couple minutes for questions. So let me end with how should we um, feel about the amount of translations we have? Well, first, as I've been arguing, try to benefit regularly from the multiple translations that we have. Take, take that as a rich resource and benefit from it. Um, even if you adopt a standard one that you generally use, um, benefit from the wealth of translations. It's so easy because so many of them are free online. You don't even have to buy something. Bible Gateway, you can just compare them. Um, to thank God for good Bible translators and translations. Thank God that there are people who become linguistics and Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars or both. You know, some of these people get multiple PhDs. Um, thank God for this. Don't berate all of them. Um, third, pray that other places in the world would be able to benefit from the same wealth of translations that we do. Pray that multiple translations will make it into non-English speaking countries. Um, recognize, uh, along with that, be careful when you criticize a translation. Um, recognize your monolingual bias if you have one. If you only speak one language. When it comes to like arbitrating between translations, just humbly say, I've never learned how to translate anything, and I've never learned another language, so I've got to rely on the experts a little bit here. Um, recognize how similar English Bibles are. That's one of the benefits of comparing them. They're a lot more alike than the, any publisher wants you to know, okay? Publishers want to sell Bibles, so, so they have a vested interest in convincing you that they're totally different. They're not. Start, start looking carefully and you'll see that. Um, and then I, I do think that there is benefit to picking a primary translation and using it. You've heard my opinion on a bunch of them. There are a bunch of translations that are really bad, like the Jehovah's Witness translation, the, what is it, the New World Bible or something like that, where they 
translate, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Well, obviously, they're translating with a theological agenda there. Um, so pick a translation. I like best translations that are um, compiled by interdenominational teams because it helps you avoid some of that bias. Um, I like translations that are going to keep being updated. I don't like it when a translation says we're doing our one for, you know, the ESV made that mistake in 2016 where they said this will be the for last update ever to the ESV and it will stay the 2016 edition forever. Thankfully, they listened to the reason of a lot of scholars and they took that back and now they'll keep updating it. You know, that's great because language changes. Um, when it comes to memorization, um, I, I was talking with Deb about this yesterday. For a long time, I was like, yeah, you need to have a primary translation so that way you're memorizing out of that translation. I want to say that's generally true, but the reality is if, if you're work comparing translations or like you're consulting with commentaries or some of the things that we try to say like, oh, this translation actually renders it way better. Why wouldn't you try to memorize it in the way better edition? So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, there's no virtue in having all your scripture text memorized from one translation. If there's a better option for that particular verse and you believe it's a better option, why not memorize that verse instead? You know, so don't become committed to a translation. Become committed to um, the most accurate and helpful rendering of the text of scripture. And for all of us, that means we'll dip our toes in multiple translations. All right, does anything anyone want to follow up on before we end here? Yeah, children's Bible. So I've, tried, I've only recommended Bibles that I've either read all the way through or almost all the way through, but I've heard of one called the International Children's Bible, the ICB, that a lot of people highly recommend. I don't know what to say about that one, but I've heard people that I really trust recommend it. Um, so maybe that would be a good option. But I think for kids, we just want them reading the Bible. Um, and they're not going to be comparing translations and arbitrating between these issues. So I don't have a kid also, so I can't say. But I imagine if I had a seven-year-old, I'd be handing them the NLT because that's one of the easier ones to read that's within the conservative um, theological spectrum. Does that make sense? Okay, we got to go. I'm happy to talk about anything else, but thanks for your attention.